And so that's what we've really been trying to do in this series, is to lift up our gaze to the Lord, even though it is so easy to concentrate our hearts and our eyes on what is below. But things always are better when we lift up our gaze, and and, uh, that has been our our main point here in the book of Judges. Again, good morning uh, to everybody, and um, we are, as I mentioned earlier, in the very last week of this uh, nine-week series through this book. And uh, before we get going, I want to always point out the service insert or the bulletin insert that uh, if you could use this uh, to follow along, I think that would be a blessing to you. Um, You know, I have to admit, I've gotten more positive feedback on this series than what I had expected going into it. In fact, uh, one gentleman was really candid with me and he said, Uh, Ben, when you introduced that we were going to do half or three-quarters of the summer on the book of Judges, I thought it sounded kind of boring, and I wasn't excited about it. But can it last longer? (laughs) He's really been a blessing to him, and I pray it's been a a blessing to you um, as well. And I thought on this last week, before we get into the the heart of today's lesson, uh, maybe we could do just a little bit of a review of of where we've been. Um, First of all, the theme, God is faithful, even while you see the little un on on the logo, even while God's people are unfaithful. And I hope if you ever struggle with the love of God for you, because of something you've done in the past or something that you, you uh, um, uh, are down on yourself about, that, that you would just go back to what we've talked about in the book of Judges and, and just be mindful of God's grace, love, and faithfulness to his promises, even in the midst of really, really horrible unfaithfulness through that time of the Judges. And so then over the last seven weeks, we've been taking a look at specific deliverers human beings, that God sent to be his instruments. Here's where the review part comes in. The first judge we looked at was Ehud. And Ehud was that crippled left-hander who, with God's help, defeated the large and in-charge King Eglon from Moab with a stab to the gut. (laughs) And God defeated the Moabites through Ehud. And then we, we looked at Deborah. And Deborah was a very interesting judge for the fact that she was a woman. And there's, again, nothing wrong with being a woman. Matt likes women, right? You know, is what we talked about. Uh, You know, he has nothing against women, even though he preached on Deborah and everything. And that's an inside story, so just forget about it, I guess. Um, But this was odd because at this time... Women were not leaders, much less military leaders, and so for God to use Deborah would catch people's attention. The, the next three weeks, we looked at a guy named Gideon, who was that frady cat wheat thresher in a wine press, and God used him from the lowliest, weakest tribe to lead an army of 300 to defeat an army of thousands. And then we looked at Jephthah. And we didn't get into this part a ton, but you got to know Jephthah at one time in his life was part of organized crime, and yet God used him for something great. And then last week we looked at probably the most familiar judge, Samson. And I don't got time to talk about all of his indiscretions. We think Samson, we think big muscles, long hair, has got to be like Fabio or something. That's a dated reference, right? But... 
The truth is, if you read through the account of Samson, what you come away with is that Samson wasn't strong. You come away with he was a violent, dysfunctional sex abuser. That's what you come away with. And yet last week, in a very poignant way, we learned that even though Samson was at the lowest of lows, he was down, but he wasn't out. And in his last moments, God used him. God used him to deliver Israel. But when you look at the book of Judges, I hope now that you see that while you've maybe heard of some of these names, these people are not the heroes of the time. Look at all of their problems. God's the hero of Judges. God's the center. God's the one in charge, and he decided to use dysfunctional, you know, uh, people, ordinary people with problems, to use them to deliver his people. Well, as we close up today, this uh, last section, we're not going to come into contact or meet another judge. In fact, if, if you read through Judges, the last five chapters are like an appendix. It's almost as if the focus shifts a little bit in these last five chapters, chapters 17 through 21. And the idea of the appendix, quite frankly, is to give the reader an overview of what the times were like. If by reading through the verse 16 chapters, you didn't get an, a feel for how unfaithful and dysfunctional God's people were, if you read through the last five, you'll get it and then some. And part of the dysfunction and the problems that we're going to see today in chapters 20 and 21 is that God's people brought a lot of this on themselves by making one dumb decision after another dumb decision after another dumb decision after another dumb decision. And so we're going to talk about this section in the realm of decision-making. And let me talk about decisions for just a moment. Um, the types of decisions we're going to talk about today are not small ones, like what color should I paint this room? Now, for some of you, that's probably a big decision that you stress over for like a month or something like that. But I will tell you, it's not a big decision because you can always paint over it again. Painting a room has, does not have long-term ramifications, okay? It's not a decision like, uh, a small decision like, where should we go for uh, out to eat tonight, dear? And there can even be arguments over that. Just pick a place. It's a small decision. Who cares where you go to eat? These are insignificant decisions in the long term. What we're talking about today what God's going to direct us to are big decisions, like, should I take that job or that promotion? Should we move? What school should I attend? Should I get married to that person? What about my marriage now that I'm in it? And there's problems. What about this attitude that I have? What about this grudge that keeps me from being able to forgive? What should I do about that? <laughs> We're talking about decisions that are big. And honestly, I don't want to like stress you out, but you already know this, that there are big decisions that are going to have a profound effect on your future life on earth. And that doesn't mean that if you make a bad decision that God is not going to use it. But I just want you to know before you come to decisions, I just want to say, your decisions are important. 
that God's will is done, but he uses our decisions, whether good or really bad. And so as we come into decisions, I think our our first fill-in-the-blank can often be true. That sometimes we make decisions just based on immediate circumstances, but good decisions are based on more than just immediate circumstances. I think sometimes we get caught in the emotion of a decision or in what seems to be a dead end of a decision, and we, caught up in the emotion of the moment or or the, the potential lack of, you know, being able to see how this could work out well in any other way, make a decision based only on circumstances. And I'm not saying that circumstances don't play into decision-making, and this will make more sense later, but good decisions aren't based just on immediate circumstances. What does he mean? We'll get there. In fact, I want to give you a question later after we look at God's word, a question that I would like you to apply to big decisions that you have in front of you or that will come. Put it on your refrigerator, this question. It's going to make a big difference in the focus of your heart and mind when you come to a big decision. Now, let's get into God's word today. So this section of scripture that we're going to look at is actually um, the most disturbing and perplexing section of the entire book of Judges, in my estimation. And in fact, it might be one of the most perplexing and outrageously disturbing sections in the entire Bible. So much so that chapter 19 that I had thought about using um, in the sermon today and describing a little bit, I, I read it this week and I'm like, I don't know how I'd explain this and people not want to just close their ears and there's kids present and all this stuff. So that's a little teaser if you want to go home and read chapter 19 on your own. But I'm just going to summarize chapter 19, a very horrible chapter, this way. There was an Israelite woman who had been killed. And she had been killed not by some enemy country or people or nation. She had been killed by some Israelite men. And now... God's people, the Israelites, are wondering what should they do about it. This horrible thing has happened in chapter 19. What should Israel do about it? We read from chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the Israelites, after this thing happened, from Dan, it's a town in the north, to Beersheba, a town in the south, and from the land of Gilead, basically these directions are saying from everywhere in Israel, They came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. What that means is that whatever happened in chapter 19 was so bad, so horrible, that even this dysfunctional nation all recognized this cannot stand. Something has to be done. And unlike unity we've seen in Judges at all, except around sin maybe by the Israelites, they have come together as one person with one mind. And the leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God, 400 soldiers armed with swords. So they have a decision to make. What are we going to do about these men from the town of Gibeah that did this horrible thing in, the, in chapter 19? And actually, their, their first decision wasn't really all that bad. 
what we need to do is we need to assemble some soldiers and we need to go to Gibeah. We need to ask the people of Gibeah who are from the area of Benjamin. It's a, an area, and so they're called Benjamites. We need to ask them to give up the men who are responsible for this so that we might carry out the death penalty and eradicate them and bring justice to the situation. So that's what they do. And they go to the Gibeah, they ask for the men, and the Benjamites decide they have a decision to make, and they decide, no, we're not going to give them up. And I don't know whether that's because there's some sort of blind loyalty to their people, or maybe they valued these men's lives over the life of the woman who had been killed, but for whatever reason, they decide not to. So now the Israelites have a decision to make again. What do we do about this? And so what they do is they wage a war against the Benjamites. And you've got 400,000, as we read about, armed soldiers of Israel going against 26,000 Benjamites. And it took them three days, but the Israelites defeated the Benjamites and wiped out the town of Gibeah. And so while the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, I would say it's pretty much understood that the men who were responsible for the death of the woman in chapter 19 had been killed. And you would think that that would have been enough, right? Here's where the chapter gets perplexing if it hasn't been perplexing already. Look at verse 48 of chapter 20. And so the men of Israel, though, even though Gibeah had already been destroyed, went back to Benjamin, put all the towns to the sword in the entire what we would call county of Benjamin, including the animals and everything else they found, all the towns they came across, they set on fire. Here's what happened. Every man, woman, and child and animal were killed. And the towns wiped out. What were they thinking? Well, you might say they weren't thinking at all, but I have a pretty good sneaking suspicion as to what happened. Either they were so angry about what happened to the girl and the fact that they had about 40,000 soldiers that had died in battle, that they, in their, at this point, lust for vengeance, decided to take it and took it overboard. Like a snowball of emotion rolling down a hill, the circumstances of the moment and the anger and the emotions that they had boiled over into doing this really, really horrible thing. Uh, in fact, there was only 600 Benjamites that escaped, and, and these were soldiers who had been fighting, so they weren't in the towns. And when they saw that all hope was lost, they had escaped to a hill country. 600 men left. And the Israelites decide, you know what? We are so ticked off at the Benjamites that we're going to make an oath that whatever man gives their daughter to be married to a Benjamite that's left is going to be cursed. Do you know what just happened through their doing this in verse 48 and their oath? God's people went from 12 tribes to 11. The, the 12 tribes of Abraham, the 12 tribes of the Jewish nation, one of them, after a few years, when these 600 men would die, would have been wiped off the face of the planet. Gone forever. A genocide. 
because a girl had died in a brutal way. <laughs> we go to the next verse. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices, and they cried bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? In essence, these questions are their way of saying, what have we done? God meant for there to be 12 tribes. We just wiped out one tribe. What have we done? And they had a decision to make. What should we do about it? How do we keep the line of Benjamin going, the tribe of Benjamin going? And so they make another decision. Here's what we can do. Uh, one guy seemingly spoke up in verse 20, um, wondering, did every town in the city of Is or in the country, country of Israel send men to fight against the Benjamites? Because we said every town should. And it's as if someone raised their hand and said, I, I don't think there's anyone here from Jabesh Gilead. It's a town. Anyone here from Jabesh Gilead? And no one would have raised their hand. Like, okay, here's what we can do to help keep the Benjamite nation going. Let's go to Jabesh Gilead and kill everybody. Except for the eligible girls. And guess what they did? That. And they wiped out Jabesh Gilead and took all the eligible women who are of marrying age and unmarried at the time. And they came back, and they found they had 400 women and 600 Benjamites. What do we do about that? We need 200 more wives. <laughs> and that's where we pick it up in the next verse. We can't give them our daughters as wives. Since we Israelites have taken this oath, cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. And in essence, what they're saying is, <laughs> technically, we said that a man can't give his daughter. But there might be another way to get daughters, to get wives. Look, there's this annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh. It's a town north of Bethel and east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and to the south of Labona. Next verse. <laughs> Here's what we can do. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, so essentially the 200 soldiers that had no wives yet, go to the festival, hide in the vineyards, and watch. That sounds spooky. When the girls of Shiloh come out to join the dancing, there is a special sort of dance that would happen at this festival every year, then rush from the e vineyards, and each of you sees a wife from the girls of Shiloh, and go then to the land of Benjamin. Next verse. <laughs> when their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us a kindness by helping these Benjamites out, because we do not, did not get wives for them during the war, and you're innocent of the oath, since you didn't give your daughters to them. We stole them from you. So that's what the Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing, the men went fishing. Each, one, each man caught one. It's just amazing. Read your Bible. And carried her off to be his wife. <laughs> and so they need 200 more women. And they just run and take them. And we'll explain later to the dads and the brothers and everybody else. Next verse. 
Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. And there's this picture of 600 Benjamites with women basically being carried on their shoulders, potentially, whether they wanted to go or not, with their new wives to the smoldering county of Benjamin to rebuild the county and their tribe. And guess what happens next? The book of Judges ends. (laughs) No happy ending. No great way to... To, to wrap it all up, at least not with the storyline. No heroes, nothing good at the end. Let me just say, Judges chapter 17 through 21, we don't teach this section in fusion. There's like no coloring sheets that we could make, I mean, for this section. Do you pick smoldering cities of Benjamin for the kids to color or men stealing women and putting them on their shoulders? You know, I mean, this isn't your Sunday school material. Why is it in the Bible? What is God trying to teach us through this very difficult section of Scripture? Well, the story ended, judges ended, but there was one more verse, and this is the verse. In those days, the very last verse of Judges, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. This is God's final word on the time of the judges, the time of the Israelites, his conclusion, his summary. There was no king, earthly king, sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, so you can go know what people did. Whatever they wanted, whatever they felt like, whatever sounded good in the moment, whatever the mob speaking as one man thought would be good, whatever their culture dictated, they did. And when you base your decisions off of circumstances in the moment and how you feel, guess what? A few years later, or when you read it recorded for you in Scripture about Bible people, or a few years later in your life, you look back and you're like, what was I thinking? When you base your decisions based off of purely circumstances, you might look back and think, What in all the world is going on just like we do when we read this section of the land of Israel? And what we see is that Israel's biggest enemies were not ites like Jebusites and Moabites and Hittites. Their biggest enemy in the book of Judges was themselves. And here's the part that you got to know, and I'm just warning you about this because it's true about me too. We look at sections like this in the Bible and we think, and we're disgusted. But I got to tell you, maybe not to this extent, but you have some of that in you. And I have some of this thinking in me. You know what? (laughs) We are experts at finding reasons to do things that we know might not be best, but we really want to do them. We're experts at finding reasons. Let me give you an example that's not a major one. I know very clearly that I should not eat bad food after 10 o'clock at night, especially like ice cream and chips with dip and, you know, stuff like that. 
And there are often days where I'm in, you know, working here at church, and I'm thinking about this because I know it's my temptation. I'm thinking, all right, I ate a good lunch. I'm not hungry right now. I'm, this is the day that I'm going to start not eating after 10 o'clock, especially bad foods. And then I have a late meeting. I get home not till after 10 o'clock, and I'm like, you know what? I know I'm not supposed to, but, but I've worked hard today. And this meeting, I mean, I deserve it just a little bit. And it's not like it's smoking or over drinking or something like that. You know, I, I mean, and, and I come up with all these excuses. And I'll tell you, I, I, I still have a problem eating after 10 o'clock, okay? Because I am an expert at making an excuse for doing something that I know really I shouldn't be doing. Now, that's a minor thing. You want to hear a major one? So two broad spectrums. If you've been following the news this week, there was a, a, a data breach at a company, an internet company that specializes in people who are married being able to have an affair secretly with other people who are married. Maybe some of you heard about this. And because of this data breach, all the names haven't become public yet, but someone knows them. Someone has them. Guess how many people have signed up for this website? Can anyone hear this? You would hope 10. 37 million people have signed up for this. Now, even if you're not a Christian, you know easily that this is not good for your relationship, your marriage relationship, even if you're not a Christian. How do people sign up for this? You know what they do? They make excuses for doing something they know is not right. Like, my marriage isn't what I expected it to be. Or my husband is distant. Or my wife isn't meeting the needs that I have. And on and on and on. And we make excuses. They make excuses. And 37 million people sign up for this horrible website. Probably your excuses... And your situations are somewhere in the middle of ice cream in this website. But I think my point is clear. We are experts at making excuses at decision time. And our next fill-in is this, that bad circumstances aren't a defense for bad decisions. You see, we can all play the victim. But if you knew, or, but, you know, I worked hard tonight at the meeting, or, you know, we can all play the victim. Yeah, you have stinky circumstances. <laughs> so do I. But I'll tell you this, bad circumstances are not a defense for a bad decision, and <laughs> it's not going to do you any good. You see, that last verse we looked at said, what, so what was really going on here? That last verse said that there was no king in Israel. There was. Their king was themselves. They had all these little kings with um, small k, all in their heart and all in their mind. In this particular section, I think the little king they had was vengeance, and they listened to the little king. Your little king... The thing that's trying to rule your life might be greed. It might be discontentment. It might be this myth that you think that you need to be happy instead of godly. 
Whereas God says, be godly first, and then you'll be joyful. <laughs> it, it, it might be some other emotion. Your little king that is trying to rule your heart might be popularity. It might be fear. It might be control. It might be American culture. And the truth is, these little kings, they do not care about you. They do not truly love you. These little kings do not want what's best for you. These little kings just want you to get swept up in the emotion of circumstances and to make a decision that ultimately is going to be a bad one. So at those moments of big decision time, big decision making, you can try this with paint on the wall too, but I don't think it's going to have quite the same effect. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself before you think about circumstances. Here's the question. With this decision, who am I serving? Who am I serving with the decision that I'm going to make? Is it a small king, small K king in my heart, like greed, lust, discontentment, and so on and so forth, or is it something else? Is it the king? Is it Jesus the king? Now I'm going to tell you that by asking yourself this question, it's not going to be always all of a sudden like, oh, it's so clear now, okay? I will tell you what this will do. It'll eliminate some choices. It won't always make the decision easy. You'll still have to pray. You'll probably debate between a few things because there's more than one answer that might serve the Lord. But I guarantee you, it'll set your mind in the right direction. It'll cut through the baloney of circumstance and the emotion around that. And it'll get your heart and mind thinking about the right things. Who's my king and who can I serve with this decision? My friends, the king was seated on his throne in the book of Judges and the people missed him. And they listen to all these little kings in their heart. The king came 2,000 years later to this earth. Remember the wise men? They were asked by Herod, you know, why are you here? Well, we saw this star, the star of the king of the Jews, and we've come to worship him. And then 33 years later, Jesus is standing before one of the most powerful Roman leaders in Israel, probably the most powerful Roman leader in Israel, and Pontius Pilate was his name, asked Jesus, I've heard you're a king, are you? And as Jesus stood there in that moment, hours from his death, beaten, bruised, bloodied, with a crown of thorns and a purple robe in a mocking way, Jesus said, it's as you say, I'm a king. A king bloodied and bruised? In chains? And then he said, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Pontius Pilate didn't get it. He's probably like, not of the, what world are you a king in? But for you and I, who have the benefit of all of the record of, of the Lord's plan we call the Bible, we know what Jesus meant. And yeah, because of sin in this world, sometimes he does not 
Well, sometimes he allows things to happen. And sometimes we doubt that he's on his throne, but I am going to tell you, he is on his throne now, just like he was in the time of the judges. And ultimately, we're going to be able to live under his rule in even a bigger way in eternity in heaven. But in the meantime, you know where he rules? In your heart. Let the big king with the big K conquer the little kings with the little K. At decision-making time and all the time, know that you have the King Jesus who died for all your sins, who conquered death, who's made for you a home in heaven, and who now wants to rule your life because unlike those little K kings, he loves you. He cares for you. And here's our last fill-in. Trust the king of heaven to also be the king of your life. At decision-making time, trust the king of heaven to be the king of your life. Many of you, and me included, we trust Jesus for our eternity, and we doubt him about our finances. We trust him for our eternity, and we doubt that he can figure out our family problems. We trust him for our eternity, but we doubt that he has our best interest in mind in the short term. Trust the king of heaven to be the king of your life right now. Because he's in control. And trust in that grows as you spend time with a person. In closing for this entire series, um, I just want to share with you the benefit of this book. About a week ago or so, um, we had a chance to go on a mini vacation up to um, the North Shore, and we spent some time at Gooseberry Falls, which I had never been to before. I, I don't think I've ever been north of Duluth in my life, so now I have. And a uh, beautiful place. I think we'll may probably try to go back. It's a great place for kids to, to have some fun. But there's also some sections, especially if you have a seven-year-old, that as a parent, you just need to be careful. And uh, my seven-year-old daughter, Addie, she was walking across a section of the river that I wouldn't say if she fell in the water that she would be swept down the waterfall or anything like that. But it was deeper. Um, it was cold. She definitely would have gotten wet, and, and she was nervous as she was walking across these rocks to the other side of the, the river. And she, in about five minutes, got about this far. <laughs> and I walked over by her, partly in fear of her falling in and partly just to help her other in, in any way. And she imme I immediately took her hand and she just kind of gave herself to me. And we walked across easily. Now, what allows a seven-year-old to just sort of give herself to a person like that? To just trust. You know what it is? It's my track record. By no means am I a perfect dad. I'm not saying that. But I'm good enough she knows I'm there for her and that I love her. You know what we were doing in the book of Judges over the last nine weeks? Establishing track record again. That God is faithful. That God loves you. That the king was on his throne, but the people missed him in the book of Judges. The king is on his throne now.
Let him take you in good times and in bad. Be at peace. You have a faithful God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and this book that you gave us uh, 3,300 years ago. And we thank you for the encouragement and strength that it's given. Dear Lord, we pray that we would respond to this, this message and this series with a deeper trust in you, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Help us to trust you in good times and in bad. Help us to remember your direction in decision-making times, that you are the King, and may we serve you with our decisions. Dear Lord, uh, we also give a prayer of thanksgiving and also of strength to the Schumann family as Jen's uh, father was called home to heaven uh, recently. We ask you to be with Jen and Ken and the family and, and just encourage them with the news that they will be able to see Jenny's dad again in heaven and, and be with them. We thank you for the faith that you worked in his heart and now that he's enjoying the eternal mansions that you have prepared for him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, uh, 